What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast, loyal listeners. I am Dan Valley coming at you this time without my esteemed co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. I am, like usual, though, super pleased and very excited to be joined by my guest. He is Adam Spinella. He's a staff writer for the Basketball Writers, so check out his work over there. He is also an assistant coach for Dickinson College men's basketball team. So he knows his X's and O's. It's always fun to bring him on. I think this is his fourth or fifth appearance now to talk talk hoops with him. We go into a lot of current event stuff. Uh, we talk about the Sixers, uh, all the drama quotes slash kind of rumors that are emanating out of Philly and whether the Sixers need to be concerned. We get into the report about Carl Anthony Towns being unhappy, and these both spur larger discussions about what can the league do to incentivize players to stay in small markets, so maybe that these discussions about their future aren't starting as early. We talk a little bit about David Stern, who passed away on January 1st, New Year's Day, following his brain hemorrhage, I believe it was on December 17th, so we just reminisce about him a little bit. And the thing that I was very excited to talk to him about as well is he has an idea for the... NBA midseason tournament. I know a lot of people don't want to see that, don't think it solves many of the NBA's issues. I agree with all of you, as does Adam, but it does feel sort of fait accompli where it's going to happen. And so I think it's important to have a discussion about whether uh, what we can do to make it more interesting. And so he has what I think are fascinating ideas there. And we get into some other stuff as well. Be sure to follow Adam on Twitter at Spinella14. That's at S P I N E L L A. 14. Make sure you're also subscribing to this show. Uh, iTunes is the best way to let us know that you're out there and listening. We appreciate every single rating and review that we get. If you can keep those numbers chugging up, we would really, really, really be be grateful there. If you find us wherever else you get your podcast, rate us, review us, subscribe to us there. But also if you can do it on iTunes as well, it's a big assist to us. Follow the show on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow our YouTube account as well. Just search Hardwood Knox on YouTube and, and it'll come up. So follow our YouTube account. I'm posting in addition to these episodes on YouTube. We also just have some edits, anything I make that I deem fun. So check us out there. Follow Andy on Twitter at Andrew D. Bailey. I am at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. And as always, remember to follow Blue Wire on Twitter at Blue Wire Pods. You're about to hear from our sponsor for this week, Untuck It. Shout out to them for helping out this show. And, and after that, we will get to some awesome hoops discussion with Adam Spinella from the Basketball Writers. Ever see an untucked button down? They look bad. Why? Because they weren't meant to be worn that way. Thankfully, there's Untuck It, the original button down shirt actually designed to be worn untucked. No matter your size or shape, Untucked shirts always fall at the perfect untucked length. With more than 50 plus fit combinations, Untucked shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages. You can find your favorite Untucked style online or check out one of their 80 brick and mortar stores. Choose from styles like wrinkle free button downs, 
super soft flannels, outerwear, and more. With Untuck It, your shirts will never look baggy, bulgy, too long, or too big again. And their website is so easy to use, they even have a whole page devoted to helping you find your fit. So whether you're shopping for the perfect holiday gift or just trying to craft a smart, relaxed style of your own, Untuck It is the way to go. Visit untuckit.com and use promo code BLUE for 20% off at checkout. That's U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T dot com and promo code BLUE for 20% off. Hey, hi, hello again, Hardwood Knox listeners. We are here with the basketball writers, Adam Spinella, a frequent guest. I think this might be his fourth appearance. And once you start getting past three, you're like a best friend of the pod, I think. So, so Adam, how are you doing? And do you feel at all maybe bad about your life knowing that you're not just friend of the Hardwood Knox pod, but now a best friend of the Hardwood Knox pod? There's no way I could feel anything other than fantastic about that news, Dan. Thank you for bestowing such an honor upon me. I am glad to be one of the best friends of Hardwood Knox and uh, wish Andy was here to to riff raff with as well. But you and I are going to make some music today, my friend. Well, I'm I appreciate you being in the minority with your feelings. Really appreciate that. Uh, the one thing that I've been getting in the habit of asking most of our guests, I've forgotten a couple times, is. How do you league pass? And I say this because I, and this has proved, it's it's about 50-50 now, but at the beginning it was a wildly unpopular opinion. I tend to get a little overwhelmed when there are like those 10, 11-game slates, 9-game slates. And as I've gotten maybe older, I, I feel like I need to focus in on one to two games a night to really maximize the takeaways that I'm getting for them. And so especially someone who's as versed in the X's and O's being a college basketball coach yourself, I'm very curious um, to see how you league pass when you're, when you're watching games live. I know a lot of people rewatch stuff, but when you're sitting down with the intention of watching games as they unfold, how do you league pass? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Dan, and, and not to kind of take all the, the air out of the room with my answer, but uh, I, I don't league pass much anymore. Um, I'm pretty heavily on team synergy these days, and it's more so because of my schedule that most of the time when games are on, I'm either out on the road recruiting or at practice or a game late at, at night. So I miss a lot of the stuff live. So I'd say I'm about like 80 20 um, on synergy when I do catch stuff live. It's, um, it's mostly watching kind of my favorite team, or I'll catch kind of a one, two, or three full games of a team I'm kind of writing on that week. So I'm pretty narrowed and, and have a, a pretty good itinerary of what teams I'm going to watch just based on where my writing's taking me or uh, if the Celtics are playing in a good one. That's always good when you can zero it, like when you're one way or the other where either projects that you want to do or something you've seen where one can inform the other, where it's, you know, I like when, um, you know, a lot of pitches from a bleach report, they're, they're all collaborative, but if an editor comes to me with an idea that's like specific, it's even better because it kind of gets to inform what I'm watching then. And a, and a lot of the times it's the other way around where you have to watch stuff to be informed on what you're writing about. Yeah. You know, that's where synergy comes in handy for me is I, I watch a lot of basketball every day to the point where I'm seeing enough things in small glimpses that I decide I want to write on it. Then I'll go back and watch, you know, a couple full games and, and from there be able to either uh, weed out exactly what I want to write and, and, you know, expand on an idea or just scrap it all together and say, yeah, maybe it was just an isolated event and not something that there's a full article on. So it's, it's working for me thus far, but I do wish there was, was more time and also a better fix for the league pass app. 
Yeah, uh, that it is. It remains a disaster, and it, I feel like it devolves every season. And every, it, yeah, improvements need to be made. So come on, League Pass, let's go. Um, getting to more current events, the Philadelphia 76ers, who are on pace to win more than 50 games this year, I need to preface this with that, uh, they seem to, I don't know what the word is, there just seems to be more drama. There was the ES, uh, piece from ESPN Zach Lowe earlier in the year talking about how the culture around the team's been a little bit better with Tobias Harris and Al Horford being instrumental in organizing team dinners, but now, um, as we... Now that we're in 2020, we've let in with things about Al Horford saying he's uncomfortable in his offensive role with the Sixers. Uh, Richardson, Josh Richardson, said something to the effect that uh, the, the energy is just not great. And so uh, what do you make of all this? Is it is it fair to be concerned about Philly, who sits at number six in the Eastern Conference as we're recording this? Or is this just, you know, there's a lot of new pieces involved. They're kind kind of going against the grain a little bit with the way their, their team is built and that they're really assembled to be a bigger issue once we get to the postseason. Look, I'm not the type of guy who's trying to go out there and ring the alarms really early in the process. I think there's always an adjustment period, not only when you have a lot of new pieces in a locker room, but when you're playing a generally different style of basketball than, than what everybody's used to playing before. You know, Josh Richardson coming from Miami, an incredibly detailed, uh, cultured type of system with spreading the floor and equal opportunity all around. It's going to be very different than the post-mismatch, jam the ball inside, lack of spacing, multiple different guys that need their touches at certain areas and at certain times style that the Sixers are playing. So I get the the frustrations or the challenges with adapting to this new system that Richardson is having. Uh, but that said, you know, things aren't great in Philadelphia. They're good and they still have such a talented roster that's probably built to, to do well in the postseason, but they've lost six of their last 10, you know, the loss to the Pacers the other night was, was pretty shameful. And the thing for them that's really caught on for me is Al Horford kind of looks like the lost man here. And I know he's never been a high volume producer in terms of his, his scoring efficiency, but he's a great focal piece on offense when you allow him to just be himself, be versatile, create for others and, and make those little plays. And right now he's in such a supplementary role within this offense that he's not really doing that. His numbers look fine, but he's not playing to his full potential. And in a lot of ways, I understand the frustrations that he's having. I understand the frustrations that Richardson's having, uh, but this team is built with defense in mind and they are still a really, really strong defensive unit. They are, but as you, you wrote a piece about this too, and Al Horford was a pretty big focus of it is that defenses are leaving him to go pack the post, particularly when Joel Embiid gets the ball. And Al Horford, especially for his position, is a good shooter, but he's never really been a high-volume guy. And this year, he's shooting barely 34% on open and wide-open threes. And so I think that's a number on those quality of looks where defenses are going to live with him taking them if it means getting to Embiid in the post. And it's complicated more, to me at least, by the fact that, one, so many of the minutes, their minutes together – are coming with Ben Simmons and that you're never rare. You're rarely at least going to see them play together without Ben Simmons because the Horford Simmons lineups need to mirror Embiid's absences. And they have won those minutes overall when Embiid is off the court and Simmons and Horford are, but 
the offense to me in the aggregate, even though the team's actually been shooting pretty well on threes in general, they just don't take a ton of them. It does feel a little bit concerning because even that starting five, which the caveat being they really haven't played a ton together, cleaning the glass has them at 441 possessions. Uh, they have a plus 8.4 net rating, but they're only in the 35th percentile of offensive efficiency. So it's not like th- this issue is a lot smaller when they're together on the floor. And even if you look at them in crunch time, they're so reliant upon Joel Embiid there that it, it feels tenable, if not if not untenable, excuse me, if not worse. And so I'm curious if you think that there's anything they can do with this roster to remedy that, or do you have to go look for outside pieces, however minor they are, to maybe give the the offense some better balance. You, you touched on so many things that, that I wrote about in the article. It's not even funny. You must have read that one at some point, Dan. Um, All but, of my thoughts here are just <laughs> summations of everything that you have written, even on the episodes you don't appear on. I don't know about that. But, uh, you know, the, the crazy thing about the Horford and Beat duo to me, the, you put them on the court and cleaning the glass says that, that they're giving up 98.3 points per 100 possessions. That's in the 98th percentile in the league. They are a fantastic defensive group. But Horford and Embiid share the floor, and they're ninth percentile with only 101.7 points per possession. Like They're barely outscoring people, even though they have this dominant defense. And a lot of it, as you mentioned, comes from sharing the floor with Simmons and just the lack of shooters that surround Embiid inside. But uh, you know, Brett Brown is doing pretty much everything he can here. He staggers those minutes as best he can with Horford and MB to try to make sure that there's at least some shooting. And and look, this was the organizational imperative that they wanted. This is how they want to play in order to topple a team like Milwaukee or what they thought they might have to, to face again with the Toronto Raptors. Is they need to be huge. They need to kill it on the glass. They need to pound teams inside and get them in foul trouble. Those have success in the postseason. Right now, it looks a little choppy. Um, but when you essentially swap out J.J. Redick and bring in Al Horford, that's what you're going to get. Is you're going to get a lot more length and interior presence on, on both ends, but you're not going to shoot the ball as well. So they have to live and learn how to, to deal with these you know, growing pains as a team. But you know they're 23 and 13. It's not like the, this is panic city over here, but they can be doing a lot better. And I have a feeling that they'll get there with this group. It's not time to overreact to anything just yet. Yeah, I mean, that's the caveat of all this is that they are 10 games over 500. But if you had to identify something that they need, is it just basically a J.J. Redick replacement? And you're never going to approximate that to a T, but that really feels like the weapon they... I mean, ideally, you probably want a face-up weapon who can shoot from everywhere like Jimmy Butler could, because I I do think, not that I've ever done a, a deep statistical dive into that, but that feels like the most important offensive weapon in close games. And Tobias Harris has never really been that player, but I, I do feel like a Redick type player or even a, a Shamit type player uh, would be huge for this team. And that's, you know, when you look at what they gave up to for Tobias Harris, like so, some of this stuff is like, you know, did they end up giving too much because they ended up letting JJ Redick walk? It just seems incredibly complicated. Or is it another type of piece that you think would really elevate this team? Yeah, they, they need shooting and they need balance. I mean, their, their starting five is so freaking talented, but they've got Three guys who I would consider like subpar volume shooters in Embiid, Simmons, and Horford. They've got three guys who probably need the ball a couple times a game back to the basket in Embiid, Harris, and Simmons. And three guys that are really good passers and playmakers. Um, so there's just 
there's almost too much talent and too many ways that they're trying to to flush it out where they just kind of got to stick to something something simple right now and and that means probably staggering the minutes of those five a little bit more and and surrounding them with more just shot makers shot makers role players and defenders and they don't they have like pieces that they can combine to take on real salary but they are really limited with what they could do because this time of the year is not you know people are going to come up with like three for one trades to maximize their salary take back and that just doesn't happen during the middle of the nba season and you're not going to move any i wouldn't think maybe you would consider moving harris but i don't i don't know who would really want him and i don't you're not going to move simmons he's on the poison pill right now and so there's nothing drastic for anyone uh who thinks that because of horford's comments maybe they'll blow it up that they could do this season i don't see them even looking at moving any of their core five i'll be more interested to look at them in the off season where i do think that they could go at least a more nuclear route if they end up coming up really short in the postseason like not making a conference finals appearance or something like that yeah though i mean the one thing i'm not advocating for this there's no source on anything like this but but the one move they should make if they do decide to blow it up or do something drastic would be getting horford out of there and sliding tobias to more of the full-time four and bringing in just more shooting on the wing i think that's ideally the way to play around simmons and Embiid. Would you, in the offseason, let's say they get bounced in the second round in like five or six games, would you consider moving Ben Simmons? No, no, I think he's he's too talented and too good. I, I understand that we have this love of, of three-pointers, and I, I fall into this category a lot as well. Uh, he's too impactful of a player when he's at his best. And right now I think it's too hard to look at him as being the reason he's not performing at his best when you we mention all the things we've mentioned before with other guys that need the ball in their hands, the lack of spacing around him, et cetera. So uh, I, I'm a big Ben Simmons believer. I am as well. And you also, unless you're moving Al Horford in conjunction with him and that then you're like just going a, an insane route. But if you move Simmons, you don't necessarily clear up the issues between Horford and Embiid either right. and what that does to the offense. That's right. Uh, another young star. Carl Anthony Towns, uh, Ethan Strauss mentioned this in an athletic piece that there are people around the league who believe that Carl Anthony Towns is unhappy in Minnesota. And anyone coming up with Carl Anthony Towns trades now is just, I, I don't think you should be. He's signed without a player option, I believe, through 2023, 2024. And so the Timberwolves are at least a ways off from having to worry about him holding the ultimate leverage. But do you see this if he actually is unhappy as, well, holy hell, now the clock starts ticking because you don't want, no matter how many years left on this deal, he has a disgruntled you know, top 10, top 12, top 15 player in the league on, on your team because that does complicate a, a lot of the decisions you need to make and your future in general. Towns needs to be catered to a little bit in Minnesota. And maybe this is a an overall symptom of, of the league and kind of small markets and where we're at with things. But when you get a incredible player like Town, he he is very underrated in terms of what he can do on offense. Now he's he's still pretty far away defensively from being a high impact player, but he can you can win with him as your focal point on offense. There's no doubt about that. He is that well rounded and talented, and it's it's pretty scary um, when you have somebody like that. You have to protect that investment, and he's locked up for a long time. I don't think that it's ever going to get to the point where. 
you know, he's demanding a trade this season and, and maybe even uh, until next year's trade deadline. I think that would probably be the soonest time something would happen. But they have to have some organizational urgency to surround him with other high-level players. You know, Wiggins is a little bit of the fool's gold, empty calories, though he's been a lot better this year. Uh, he still a little bit is and, and isn't kind of the the winning player, uh, so to speak. But, uh, you know, I like a couple of the pieces they have there. They're just super thin with their their depth and their bench right now and they don't have a ton of intriguing young players uh i would say Akogi and culver are really it but those aren't guys that you're looking to trade so there's just a frustratingly small amount of of you know cash have to kind of deal right now so we'll see what happens with that um but I just I think it's very hard right now to look at Towns and say he's not one of the, if not the best, offensive big man in the game. Yeah, I, I actually think all this does, if he's actually unhappy, is bring up a larger issue. How do you incentivize stars to stay in bigger markets, not only for their third contract, but through their second contracts? Because I think sort of an offshoot of what happened with LeBron and the big three in 2010 uh, free agency. I know we've seen super teams before that, but that was really the advent of the superstar player license. I, I, you know, we talk about the the player, the power that players have, but it's really a select group of players that have it. And so after that, you saw like these trade demands come before the end of contracts, where the thought process was, well, you're not going to want to lose me for nothing. And you know, it starts with Melo. There's Chris Paul, the Dwight, the, the whole Dwight Howard debacle and everything we've seen since maybe there are a couple players I think you know Kevin Durant Oklahoma City was always going to ride that out they never had clear indication that he was going to leave but now it's become commonplace for you're not going to get these guys for the full length of their two contracts because if they're unless they're definitely coming back for a third you're going to have to move them before then and so do you have any ideas uh, about how the league could incentivize players to stay without also sort of hamstringing the the players' agency. Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's not even an idea as much as it is just the league needing to to check itself a little bit. Like we have a Christmas Day marquee where the Milwaukee Bucks are playing and they don't perform well and all of a sudden the national media landscape is on ESPN talking about should Giannis leave next year in free agency. Like we need to stop almost wishing this into existence so that the stars align in large markets. It, it seems like the, the media is is driving this in a lot of ways. And I hate to point the finger at, you know, myself and, and kind of the industry that we're in here, but that's kind of where it's at right now. Is we, we fuel the fire way too much with pipe dreams and this or that, where, you know, uh, we don't give guys and give organizations patience that they probably deserve because building a championship level team is really really hard that's why only one team does it a year right Um, like it's it's incredibly hard to do so um i think first and foremost again not an idea but we just have to to stop wishing these things into existence a little bit um that does feel like a byproduct of trying to make the nba 24 7 365 because free agency and, uh, and trades have to become such a huge part of that equation. And we know teams are thinking that far out. And so as the NBA's tried to be that 24, seven, 365 interest, interest driver, it does feel like that's, that's an uptick that has happened. Not, I won't say 
you know, calculated, but it's almost ingrained into that line of, of thinking of when you want to keep the NBA relevant year round, talking about players who could leave no matter how far out they are, where it seems like now we're talking about these guys. Two, we were talking about Giannis before this year. I think Woj said it two seasons ago that the clock is ticking on Giannis. So yeah. it's, 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 and now we're talking about it with Towns. And so it's, yep. it's, it's really bizarre and, and tough to sort of wrap your head around and provide any real way to, to fix it. We could say that the media can focus on, on other stuff. And I agree, you know, we don't need to hear about, especially when the, you know, every time Giannis plays on national television, we don't need to hear about whether he'll leave. Like that doesn't need to be the, the, the central topic of conversation, but it is also part of keeping the NBA that year round spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of you know, finger pointing and blame to go around for kind of where something like this starts or where it stops. But, uh, you know, you'd mentioned kind of structural ideas or changes that can kind of protect teams in, in this instance that are in small markets. Uh, one idea that I've had, and, you know, you and I have, have spitballed on a lot of cap musings and changes before, but uh, one thought for small market teams in particular who this would benefit if you sign a player to a max contract that you have their bird rights to, you you know essentially been with that team through their rookie contract on to their next one, once they sign their max deal, uh, that team would be allowed to go over the luxury tax and the apron line. With, they would essentially raise by 30% of that player's contract. So what that would allow small market teams to do is spend a little bit more money without consequence of running into kind of the the league-wide, league-imposed limits. And the reason that's important is small teams, small market teams have to take risks in order to sign better players. They either have to overpay or maybe sign somebody that has a little bit more baggage or or might have a little bit of a, a risk involved. And a team shouldn't have to do that in order to field a competitive team around one star player because it's really rare that they get two. Uh, because no one else is going to want to sign there. So I think that the league has to kind of look at when the next collective bargaining agreement, how do we continue to help those small market teams and, and perhaps giving them an ability to raise their cap ceiling would be one way to do so. Yeah, that I, I think that's the I probably like the most efficient way of doing it. Um, the thing that I thought of is it's kind of similar as where you they tried to make this a financial incentive for players to stay. And it's clearly just not enough because of the type of money they're making. I think one thing you could do is make it so astronomical, like the difference uh, between what they could get from their one team and then what they could get on the open market, that it would make it more of an incentive. And then like you said, uh, they could raise the luxury tax for that team or the apron, or maybe that money that goes over the whatever, let's say the 35% max, every dollar over it doesn't even count towards your luxury tax building or, or apron, that would be one way to look at it. Maybe you could even, you know, I know shorter deals are a big thing now, but if you can offer six, even as opposed to the four that they could get, does that help it at all? And again, I think the big thing would be make it such an astronomical difference in money. And if it doesn't count against the cap, that maybe there is sort of mutual benefit there. So those are the only real musings I have on it. It does seem like a very, hard topic to solve, but it also feels more pressing than ever to address given how far out we've monitored Giannis Antetokounmpo's future and now what's happening to a smaller degree so far, but it's going to pick up after Giannis makes his decision 
uh, with the Supermax this summer uh, about it's going to pick up for Carl Anthony Towns' future. The Supermax has backfired in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, you know, it, it hasn't been as designed. And, and for me, you know, we talk about incentivizing individuals and offering them money. Like these guys make so much for their sponsorship deals and everything else that they're involved in off the floor that it, it almost, it seems silly to talk about, but like the increase, ha- as you said, has to be astronomical in order for that to matter. So to be like, what's the big thing that keeps players in small markets is winning. And guys are going to want to stay if, if they're on a team that's successful and they have a chance to win a championship and be the man and play in the national spotlight and have all those things there. So I, I always think it comes back to incentivizing the team to do things that allow them to either spend more money or just circumvent the cap in certain ways that, that they wouldn't be able to do unless they had a superstar max contract player. Yeah, um, it's... I'm with you there, and so it'll be. I'm assuming it's going to get addressed at some point. It'll be interesting to see what they come towards. But whatever you think of, whether it's us theorizing or what the actual solution becomes, you always have to try and consider the potentially unintended consequences because that's what's happened with the supermax. It's it's a great question, Dan. It's a fantastic question to ask, and and I've thought about it too. Those unintended consequences, like if you put that rule in for teams that can go like 30 percent above the apron or whatever. There's still going to be those large market teams that draft well and have a player that they sign to an extension and they go over and now the scales are tipped even further in the direction of them to sign other free agents. So like there's always going to be a catch 22 in any of this stuff. That's why it's hard to have small markets and large markets all play by the same rules. One of the other things I want to talk to you about, uh, Kevin Love trade rumors are heating up in the sense that the New York Times, as Mark Stein said on New Year's Eve, he, this is a direct quote from him, heard some fresh optimism on the final day of 2019 that Cleveland may just find a workable Kevin Love deal before the buzzer. Kevin Love trades are complicated for me, not just because he's in the first year of that four-year $120.4 million extension uh, or whatever the exact amount was, but also because what he's done has become so standardized at his position or up front that he's no longer as much as a, a functional anomaly or, or asset. And so how much money are you comfortable committing to him and how much better does he actually make your team? It feels like he needs to be in a very specific situation for it to work. Uh, do you one feel that way? And two, are there any potential destinations slash deals that you would be interested to see before the deadline for him? Kevin love, Kevin love, Kevin love. This, <laughs> this, I mean, he was one of my favorite players when he was with the Timberwolves early in his career because he was dominant. He was kind of this old school guy that would just throw his shoulders around, was stronger than everybody else and had such polished offensive moves. And then he saw where the league was going and he jumped ahead of that trend. He slimmed down so he could guard a little bit more mobile players. He really worked on his outside shot and he became a a knockdown stretch forward and that allowed him to win championships with Cleveland and be an unbelievable asset for that team. But the rest of the league and the skill set of other role players and guys with similar builds or athletic profiles have all caught up to him at this point. And what he offers a team is not as rare, and because it's not as rare, it's not as valuable. So the replacement type of player that you can get with the same skill set, the same defensive deficiencies, 
is not only going to be cheaper, it's also going to be younger. So any team that takes on Kevin Love needs to do so in a we've got to win in this two or three year window type mm-hmm. of mentality. Um, I don't know too many teams that have that mentality, have the need at his position, the assets that they'd be willing to send out to Cleveland or that Cleveland would want, and just the desire to eat that contract. Um, the, the name that we've been hearing this for years is Portland. And with the way that they're, they're doing with Mello right now, I mean, who the hell knows? But um, I would be really interested to see if Kevin Love ended up in Portland because I think that they're a little bit more desperate on their timeline just because of um, how that team might look if they're able to bring back Lillard, McCollum, Love, and Nurkic. They could certainly use his rebounding too. And I guess once, if Nurkic is healthy, I mean, even with Whiteside, it's, it's kind of workable. But do they have the mobile center necessary to make it okay to have Kevin Love play those those long minutes would be my question for them. Uh, but you're right about the timeline. The team that I'm fascinated with, and it, they would only have the timeline if they know who their coach is going to be next season and that he's not going to retire. Hint, hint. I just want to see Kevin Love on the Spurs. Uh, there's yeah. so much just happening there. Like There's just layers. They're back in the playoff race as we record this. Uh, there's just layers upon layers of, of weird stuff there. But if they were able to involve if it doesn't take a lot of assets to get him, and it'd probably take a third team if, if DeMar DeRozan's going to be one of the pieces that are moved. But Kevin Love feels like he'd be a good fit in San Antonio and that they would be a team that could at least maximize what he does. Or, you know, maybe it's, do they minimize it? Because all of a sudden we thought Aldridge was on this trajectory of shooting more threes, and that's basically been stamped out of his game like it really has been for DeRozan. So would he have the same license, Love, in San Antonio? I believe he would just because he's always been that different type of player. But he would be just because of his passing – um, what the Spurs, not so much this season, but some of the defensive lineups they could run out around him with the personnel that doesn't include DeMar DeRozan, I would be, I would be intrigued to see it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of teams that I think about. Like The Spurs are a good one if they were able to, I don't want to say downsize their front court, but you know, like actually commit to taking three-pointers as part of their strategy, then he makes sense. Uh, I've thought a dark horse throughout this whole thing would be the Sacramento Kings. Like Vivek is kind of irrational enough to do something like that. And, you know, maybe you could put Dwayne Dedman in, whether it's, you know, Harrison Barnes or somebody else in there, and you commit to kind of playing Kevin Love at the four and, and really spreading the floor around De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Heald. Like there's, there's some intrigue in something like that. But at the end of the day, it's just a lot of years and a lot of money to eat. And I don't know if what he gives a team is special enough to do so. So I, I just, uh, you know, for me, all of the trade stuff and chatter around Kevin Love circles back to this idea where I just can't get on the bandwagon of somebody giving up a lot in order to get him right now. Yeah, that's uh, the two things I'm saying. That. The Kings, I think they're interesting too, but could you imagine what the defense would look like if it's ever Fox, healed Love, and Bagley on the court at the same time, and especially if that fifth guy is Bogdanovich? Let's play, let's play the five on four game then. Let's cherry pick. We've been talking about this for years, Sacramento. Now's the time. Yeah, Vivek wants it. Uh, we just have to make sure that Vladi Divox is cool with Kevin Love's dad so that the, the trade can work. <laughs> That's right. Do you think the Cavs will get what do you, what, like, are they going to get just a medium to low first round pick, a medium to, you know, low end prospect? Could they get both? Do you see, because you've talked about you don't see a team giving up the moon for him and I'm with you. I'm just, they're going to get at least one of those things, right? But it's, I just don't think it's going to be a high end, a, 
a high-end picker prospect. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of it depends also on the type of salary that they're eating that they take back. Like if they they bring back a, a guy that's you know going to be under contract for two or three years, like maybe there's an additional late first round pick or heavily protected one that's in there. Um, I, I just uh, you know again if if they're trying to shed salary of love and not take anything back, I don't know how they can get anything more than a late first or like a a fringe first round type of player that's already in the league right now. Yeah. I mean, a good way to maybe up the return would be just to take on unwanted money. I just don't know, like looking at the contracts around the league right now, like I don't know which team has a really bad contract that would also have the timeline uh, to want to, to pay a slight premium or an actual premium to get off it. I agree. Yeah, I fully agree with you. Uh, I did not talk to you about this beforehand, uh, but do you have any, Thoughts, memories, appreciations for David Stern, who passed away the day that we're recording this, almost about a half a month after his his brain hemorrhage. That was, I think, everyone was kind of bracing for bad news because there was there was one chatter about it, but just from a fan perspective, there's not there just wasn't a lot of buzz after the initial uh, the initial incident. And so I his I think his legacy in the moment it's. It, it's definitely he did so many things for the NBA, but as people have also mentioned, he was very combative, uh, ruled with an iron fist to an extent. But just all he did for basketball, and even some of the funnier moments, I know a lot of people are going to remember basketball reasons and and hate that and view that as the biggest mistake. But you know the 2013 draft where he's encouraging the booze um, and saying they had to talk to the to the European attendees to let them know that booze are a sign of respect. It was just it was stuff like that is and uh, coupled with what he did to advance the game I think he's just someone who's going to be viewed mostly fondly moving forward even though there are some things to to really harp on and, and consider maybe in the in the weeks and months and years to come I, it's a horrible for this world for the game of basketball uh, I had the pleasure of, of meeting David Stern once he was an incredibly kind man uh, and it was in a non-basketball context that I met him too just a super nice guy I was out hiking one day uh, but but really awesome guy. So it's always sad when somebody who's been so meaningful to something, uh, we all care about the NBA. And the reason that we're able to care about it is because of how much Stern poured into it, how he pushed every right button along the way, even though a lot of times he might have been abrasive in doing so, or a lot of people disagreed with his, his, you know, his strategies. Uh, but they worked. And the one thing I'll say is his impact spans so far, so wide, and for so long. I mean, he had such a heavy hand in this the creation of free agency. Mm-hmm. And to see that evolution of that term from where it was when he was commissioner in the 80s to where it is now and the agency that players have and how they, as we've talked about on this podcast, they're driving trades while they're still under contract and superstars are calling the shots in a way that no star player ever has in any other league. Like he is to be celebrated for a lot of this where, you know, if you're a fan of, of teams, he's grown the teams, he's grown the value of the teams and of the league. If you're a fan of players and want them to have their individual agency, that goes back to Stern too. Uh, he's got his fingerprints on everything for how North American sports have grown over the last 25 years, if not more. And uh, that that really needs to be celebrated. And he's you know part of the reason why a lot of people are complaining about the NBA from different angles the the ratings obviously the quality of the national broadcasts uh, the the coverage we already talked about 
you know, when we're discussing players so far out from free agency, whether they're going to leave these smaller markets. But that focus exists because people do still care so much about the NBA, even though the ratings might imply that regular season interest is is down. And so he's a part of just building this brand that people care so much about to the point where they're going to to nitpick over and pour over these potential flaws. I mean, look, I'm there's no two ways about it. I'm a college basketball coach. I'm a huge NBA fan. I'm a writer. And I do this because of Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan's Bulls. And those don't get uh, the exposure to a six-year-old kid when he's hitting his jump shot and step back over Byron Russell if David Stern doesn't push every right button to get it there. Yeah, definitely with you. The final thing I wanted to talk to you about is also the the most, or the thing that I'm most interested in to talk to you about. So you approached me uh, via direct message a couple weeks ago about your idea to add stakes or incentives to the midseason tournament that in the NBA that does feel like it's going to get through just based off everything we've heard. And I'm still not the biggest proponent of it, but I thought your idea at least made it so teams would be more likely to care and there'd be reasons for fans to turn in. And so I'm wondering if you can just, uh, you wrote an article about it at the basketball writer. So people should definitely check it out and subscribe to you, obviously there, but I'm wondering if you can lay out the, the crux of your argument for our listeners or your idea, excuse me. Sure. Sure. Be happy to do it. Um, I have been so vehemently opposed to a midseason tournament for so long that I decided to kind of have a thought exercise with myself and beat my head against the wall to say, if we were to have to do this, what would be the best way to do it? Um, and kind of what I came up with here was a concession of a shortening the season from 82 games to 76, placing a midseason tournament around Martin Luther King weekend, which would be the, the championship day on MLK day. Uh, something that I think has a lot of meaning for the league and then structuring it so that there's essentially two separate tournaments. There's an Eastern conference and a Western conference tournament. And, uh, you know, Eastern conference teams compete with those in the East. They're seated based on their record at the time of the tournament. And the incentives are the key part. First thing you get, if you would win the midseason tournament is an automatic berth to the postseason. So those bubble teams that are kind of six through 12 or 13 in the conference standings, have a lot more of an incentive to try hard during this weekend because this could be what literally changes the fortune of their season. What about those teams at the bottom, like the teams that might be 14th or 15th or want one of those high lottery picks? What incentive do they have to speed up their process? If they win the, the tournament, but they finish with one of the 14 worst records, they'll still be in the lottery. That's kind of a concession that we made was, you know, their odds won't change. It will all be based on regular season record in order to determine the odds, not based on whether you qualify for the playoffs. The next thing that we did was kind of look at those top four or five teams each season, those that are, you know, really, really high quality teams that might say, you know what, maybe a little bit of rest would benefit us. Um, what is it that we kind of have incentivized to do this? We're already going to qualify for the postseason. We don't need an automatic berth. And that's what I, I deemed the race to 55. Uh, essentially, if you win this midseason tournament and you win 55 of the 76 regular season games, then you will clinch 
home court advantage throughout your conference. And that is a huge, huge deal because usually that, that's, that equates to about 67% of your games that you would win. And there's usually only three or four teams a year that get to that level. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you win this midseason tournament, not only do you go 4-0 and during the tournament and get four extra wins here, but it incentivizes you to work a little bit harder during that second half of the season. Um, I think there's so many different avenues and branches off of this that work, but to me, it's the only way to kind of incentivize teams one through 15 or one through 30, really, to put their all into a tournament like this. You see, I was a big fan of this idea. I believe I called it very interesting with lots of ease in very. Do you see any potential unintended consequences or, or drawbacks from it? The one I, mean, I think that I proposed, and I think it was like a tiny one, uh, would you run into post-tournament tanking issues in the event that like a, a Charlotte or a, a Phoenix won the midseason tournament and they know they're in the playoffs already and now they're like, well, hey, we're close enough to the lottery because we're middling. We might as well just up the value of our draft pick. Yeah, that, I think that's part of it, especially if they get surpassed by another team within the midseason tournament. Like if a, a you know a ten seed all of a sudden goes three and one, loses in the championship, is that momentum going to push other teams to the bottom? Um, the biggest drawbacks to me aren't competitively; they're financially. Uh, sacrificing six regular season games is tough, especially for each team. It means three home contests. Right. Um, that, that's a, that's a really large drawback for a lot of those small market teams to say, you know, why am I willing to, to give this up, this, all this money in order to maybe slightly increase my odds of making the postseason? Um, the, you know, the second drawback is where do you have these games? And it's something that I hit on a little bit in the article, but didn't have uh, a ton of depth on is kind of looking at scheduling of arenas. Um, if you have a midseason tournament and it's going to be based on you know the higher seed hosting, you won't know that until at least a week before the games. So, you know, a lot of these teams share arenas with NHL teams. They share them with concerts or whatever that arena schedules. Mm-hmm. You kind of navigate that from a national television standpoint to make the tournament worth buying into. If you have to weave in and out of all these other, you know commitments that that venues have. Um, And then there's something interesting about a neutral site and doing it kind of in a March Madness style format. Is that something that's going to transfer well to the NBA product, which is, you know, all based on, on visual and and, audible experience for the viewers, whether it's in person or at home. So uh, there are a lot of, you know, bumps in the road of getting to that point, which the NBA is going to have to tackle regardless if they want the midseason tournament. I don't think that my specific proposal is something unique to that, uh, but it is something that does cause me to bang my head against the wall and say, why are we even looking at this midseason tournament? We're overreacting to this thing. That's It does feel, everything does feel like an overreaction where it feels like, it, it, it maybe it's not, an, or it's, it's an overreaction or it's also they're just trying to preserve keeping the regular season as long as possible so as to not dent the number of gate profits where each team has 41. And yes, you know, losing two to three home games is it's money, but it's, you know, the more drastic proposals are like, let's, you know, shorten the season to 58 games and every team plays every other team twice. So that's what it does feel like. And I don't think, I don't 
think the midseason tournament is a solution. I do think your idea makes would make me at least want to watch it, or I'm going to have to watch it regardless, but I wouldn't be as opposed to it that way. And one of the things you mentioned the NBA is going to have to tackle no matter what is the, the sites of these games, or even if you just bake them into the schedule, I do feel like there needs to be something specifically done for that quote-unquote midseason tournament championship game up to where it's not going to be played at you know, where one team's away and, and one team's home. If it's going to be single elimination, I just don't think that'll work in that way. And the the other question I would have, this is more towards the tournament in general, but maybe I'm not, it's not as concerning to me, is whether there would be enough variance in the results to give a team like, you know, this year's Charlotte team or somebody, could they actually win this tournament and then, in your model, get that automatic playoff bid? And then how much does that piss off a team that is going to finish, let's say, I mean, I guess Charlotte's a bad example this year because they might finish ninth in the East. But, you know, if it was the Bulls uh, who are the Magic, who are supposed to be in the eighth seed in the East, and now they're bounced out even though they have this worse record than the Hornets. But then I also wonder, leading to my first question as I ramble here, is just is that going to happen often enough for it to become a real thing? Because I like the idea of your stake specifically where automatic playoff bid, but I'm just wondering if it's if we're going to see enough variance in winners where – a, a bad to really mediocre team that wouldn't make the playoffs is going to win enough of these tournaments for that to be a, a real, a, a real incentive. Yeah. There, I mean, there's so many different things you have to work through with any proposal in any way, you know, right now, and I hit on this earlier in talking about how to incentivize teams to, you know, keep their star players and make sure that there's less movement in that front. Like I'm not a big fan of just throwing more money at people especially at individuals, because I don't think it, it solves a lot of the problem in terms of motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like a lot of the models that you see out there talking about this, you know, 1 million per player cash prize or whatever it is like to me, that's, that's really hokey. That's what, you know, the TBT or all these other tournaments are, are kind of about where, you know, okay, go watch FS1 if that's what you want to do. Like the NBA <laughs> above that standard a little bit and, and let the games be meaningful in themselves. Yeah, that's, I, I think I, I tend to be with you there. I don't, the problem is, is that I don't have a, a good solution, like alternatives to not, you know, let's remove the tournament, uh, even the, the conference receding. I, I don't have like, and I don't know if you do, this is not something I asked you before we recorded, whether you have like any alternatives to help the regular season matter more aside from really slashing the schedule and giving it fewer games. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't. And, and I think 82 games is a ridiculously long season. You know, as a college coach who, who coaches a team that plays 25, which is less than a third of that, it's, it seems just daunting to me to go through that long of a season. Um, but money is involved and historical significance is involved and cutting that back is, is a really tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. So, um, no, I, I don't have a great solution to any of these issues. And I'm also going to be one that tells you, I don't think that the issues are as genuine or as, as large as a lot of people make them out to be like viewership is down across the board in a lot of different ways. That's how we consume products in our, digital instant information, social media age. Um, whether that has an effect on NBA revenues with the next CBA and television contract agreements, we'll see. But it certainly is a bit of an overreaction for us to go from, you know, this has been a middling idea in the past to we've got three months of down product in the first stretch of the season. Oh my God, let's throw in a midseason tournament and really make this thing happen. 
Right. It does kind of feel like it's going to be done, though, doesn't it? Yeah, that's uh, again, that's why I forced myself to ram my head <laughs> through a wall and get this article done. It was like, uh, we need to come up with, with the best strategy to make it happen if this is going to happen. And I, I do agree with you, too, that some of the issues feel overblown, disingenuous. You know, the load management thing would be an example of that, where it's Kawhi Leonard's really the only player in the league, and maybe Joel Embiid a little bit, who are load managed. And in Leonard's example specifically, he has. I don't know this for sure, but he has like a degenerative leg issue like that. He needs to be, this is so that he can actually continue playing. It feels like. And so there's, there's always people that are up in arms when he wasn't playing on a national televised game, but this doesn't happen, you know, every five seconds and load management just feels like it's just become this hyperbolic issue. And, and, and that, that discussion, that discourse feels disingenuous where we're, where we almost might be. And again, I don't know the cause specifically of why the ratings are down. It definitely has to be a, a mixed bag this this goulash of problems if you if you will i don't think load management is at the heart of the issue just because it's not really a thing that exists to a drastic extent no and look maybe i'm a little bit different on this because i'm inside a locker room and and try to take things from a player's perspective as much as possible but we we need to stop viewing players as solely financial assets or solely as tokens of our entertainment like these are guys that are literally destroying their bodies and doing so in the the sake of competition for the sake of of their own you know well-being and paychecks but um if guy needs a day off every now and then that's not a terrible thing that we need to be all up in arms over if i go to buy tickets to a clippers game and Kawhi leonard isn't playing that night I don't think I need to be upset with Kawhi Leonard. I think I need to take a step back and say, oh, geez, like this guy does a lot. I got unlucky. Yeah, I could see from a fan's perspective, though, particularly if, you, if you're if you a road fan, where that would be frustrating and you only have the chance if it's an Eastern Conference team to see him once a year. But I don't think the issue is large enough to where it's been the root cause of, of what's happened to the ratings. No, it, it it can't be. It, it's it's too small, too isolated, too few. Many, you know, uh, times when load load management have come up, and and I just I, I don't understand how we're we're just everything is quick. Let's find a solution because our ratings are down a little bit. Well, Adam, this was a fantastic discussion as always. I appreciate you coming on and indulging my hoops questions. If you guys are not following Adam Spinella, you need to change that post-haste. He is a staff writer for the basketball writers, as I mentioned in the intro. He's also a Dickinson College assistant men's basketball coach. Love talking hoops with you. Follow him on Twitter, at Spinella14. That's at S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A-14. I will definitely be pestering you in the future, probably as we get closer to the NBA draft, since we've already had a, a few discussions uh, about that. Uh, until next time, though, I leave everybody else with a shout-out to Benno Udry and Kyle Anderson. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.